0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.
1: You're listening to the third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the Foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for today's Third Thursday webinar. I'm Dave Iverson, the contributing editor at the Michael J. Fox Foundation and the moderator for today's uh, webinar, which is going to focus on urinary problems in Parkinson's disease. Urinary problems are one of those issues in Parkinson's disease that wind up affecting a lot of people, and we're going to talk about both why that is and and what some of the possible treatments um, for that are. We'll begin by talking some about the autonomic uh, nervous system, um, which is that automatic system in the body, and urinary issues, of course, are something that are affected by that. So we'll talk about how Parkinson's affects the autonomic nervous system and why urinary problems um, are, can be a, a part of that and what it is about Parkinson's disease that may be causing those issues. And then we'll talk some also about, about the, the way in which those problems um, can be treated. And then we'll also focus on what the ongoing research um, is in this area and what we hope uh, to learn more about um, as that research uh, progresses. Let me introduce um, who's joining us um, for our webinar today. Um, Dr. Maria De Leon is a retired movement disorder specialist um, who also cared for a family member member, her grandmother with Parkinson's, and she's cared for thousands of patients actually with Parkinson's over the course of the years before she was diagnosed with Parkinson's yourself. So uh, Dr. DeLeon, welcome. Thanks for being part of this, both with your expertise as a, as a physician, but your expertise uh, with a patient perspective as well. Welcome. Thank you very much. We're happy to have you join us. Joining us as well is Dr. Janice Miyasaki, who's a professor of medicine and director of the Movement Disorders Program at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Has a particular interest um, in the topic area that we're exploring today. Dr. Miyasaki, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And joining us as well is Dr. Jorge Juncos, who is an associate professor in the Department of Neurology at Emory University of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Juncos, thanks thanks so much for being part of our conversation too. My pleasure. All right, let's get started, and we'll we'll get right into this question of of um, the autonomic. Um, nervous system and, and what exactly it is. We focus so much in Parkinson's disease on the symptoms that we all um, experience when it comes to the movement disorder parts of the, of the condition. But there are many other things that, are, that wind up being affected in Parkinson's in particular, and you see a list of all of those things that are part of this automatic uh, function uh, that takes place in the body that governs these various uh, questions from blood pressure to temperature to bladder control. Dr. Miyazaki, if you would, get us started by um, just giving us a little bit more information about what the autonomic uh, nervous system is and and why it winds up being so important um, in the experience of someone who has Parkinson's disease.
2: Certainly. The autonomic nervous system is that part of the nervous system that looks after functions that should be automatic like monitoring your blood pressure so when you stand up to help raise the blood pressure after you exercise to keep the blood pressure high um, your heart rate temperature control as well as constipation and uh, problems with your stomach emptying which can really affect your medication absorption and of course constipation can also affect bladder control Uh, the urinary uh, symptoms in Parkinson's are very common and often under-recognized because they're attributed to other uh, medical problems or just simple aging. And sexual function is also under control of the autonomic nervous system. As we know, Parkinson's disease is not just a motor Uh, disorder. It it causes problems in many parts of the nervous system, and doctors and hopefully patients are getting more familiar and better at asking and advocating for
1: attention to these symptoms. And we should also note that for those of you who have an interest in some of the other autonomic problems that can occur in Parkinson's, we have talked about a number of these in the past. You'll see the note at the bottom that if you want to go back and listen or experienced some of our past webinars, done webinars on constipation, on sexual dysfunction, on low blood pressure in Parkinson's, which is another very common symptom that's part of the autonomic nervous system. So if you have an interest in any of those other uh, uh, topics, um, you can go back and listen to some of our, our other webinars on this subject as well. All right. Let's let's take it a step further then, and begin to talk about the the frequency of these um, problems. As Dr. Miyasaki has already suggested, uh, they're very very common in people. We think up to eighty percent of those with Parkinson's experience some kind of autonomic uh, uh, symptom uh, problem. And what we want to explore a bit further before we get into the urinary difficulties in particular are what causes that. Um, and and we think. Um, Dr. Hunkos, that this has to do with the culprit in many ways, you could call it in Parkinson's disease, the, the protein alpha-synuclein, which we know plays a role in, in killing the neurons in the brain, but we find that, that, that protein problem elsewhere in the body too, right? And, that, and how, Can you explain how that connects and causes perhaps some of these other difficulties within the autonomic system?
3: So this same protein that uh, accumulates in the brain and leads to the uh, demise of the dopamine neurons also accumulates in the periphery, in areas such as the mucosa of the bowel, but also in the autonomic nervous system itself, in the ganglia, in the the nerve roots that that innervate this uh, automatic part of the body. And... Over time, they lead to uh, degeneration of those neurons as well, and as a consequence, uh, some of the symptoms that we're talking about. Now, it's important to make a distinction between the autonomic nervous system being affected and autonomic failure, which is a separate disease in which the autonomic nervous system is more seriously affected than it is in Parkinson's disease. Fortunately, most of the symptoms that involve the autonomic nervous system and Parkinson's disease can be managed. They can't be cured, but they can be managed. And the regular medications that we use to treat the Parkinsonian motor symptoms can help in many instances, but in some cases it can also hinder and make worse some of the autonomic nervous system. So it's important to let your doctor know about these symptoms So they know how to modulate the other medications that they're having to use to control the motor symptoms.
1: And Dr. Miyazaki, are any of these autonomic problems linked together? For example, we saw on the last slide the list of different problems ranging from constipation to low blood pressure to problems with bladder control, which we're going to be getting into in a moment. If you have one of those problems, let's say constipation, are you more likely to perhaps have another like bladder control? Is there any linkage between these various problems that occur in the autonomic system?
2: Uh in general, Dave, uh the non-motor symptoms tend to cluster together. So, as the illness progresses and people have had Parkinson's disease for longer periods of time, they tend to accumulate more of the non-motor symptoms and of course, uh, very prominent among them are the dysautonomic symptoms. And as Dr. Hunkos mentioned, many of the medications we use can help, but sometimes they make it worse. And it is important that we're always weighing, both in the patient's mind, what is the motor benefit versus perhaps the worsening of these autonomic symptoms. For instance, levodopa is the most effective medication for controlling motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease, but it can lower your blood pressure. And certainly patients will say an hour after taking their levodopa that they might feel worsening lightheadedness. Uh, So you can see that these symptoms go together. Also, um, in the past, people have proposed that some dopamine agonists might have a beneficial effect on bladder control, but this hasn't been shown in a large-scale basis or um, to a clinically significant degree.
1: Okay. Well, with all that as background, let's let's delve into our our main focus today, which is to talk about the urinary problems that occur in uh, Parkinson's uh, disease that are part of these autonomic problems that we've been talking about uh, more generally. Um, and and we can see, as the slide suggests, that the problems can go either way. They can be problems in uh, being able to hold on to uh, uh, your your urine uh, appropriately, so that you have to go too often. Or it can be the reverse, where the problem is not being able to, to go often enough, not being able to empty your bladder. Let's bring um, uh, Dr. De Leon into our conversation at this point. And because you have this unique experience of being both a, a neurologist, but also now someone who's living with Parkinson's disease, if you could, uh, Maria, describe some of what you've experienced in the way of urinary uh, problems, and then we'll explore in more detail with our other guests what's behind those problems and what we may be able to do about it.
0: Sure. Thank you very much. Um, Well, certainly when I first um, began having symptoms, one of my initial symptoms was uh, increased urgency uh, to urinate. Uh, And so during my practice, I was constantly looking for the bathroom, and uh, every time I traveled, looking to see where the next bathroom was so that I could make sure that I made it on time. So that was a big issue for me. Uh, And throughout the years of my Parkinson's, which has been over 10 years now, um, I've had problems with my bladder um, with increased urgency. And the thing that I have discovered is that it's not always one single factor that's causing my uh, bladder problems. It's not always uh, related to uh, my Parkinson's getting worse or needing, um, you know, medications. But also we can't forget about other problems that exist in normal people like, you know, increased um, bladder problems as we age with women particularly and also increase urinary infections with uh, tendencies with women. Of course, getting diabetes or getting, you know, having for men, you know, prostate problems. So that's also something to keep in mind. And are those the
1: problems that that, uh, Maria de Leon is describing, Dr. Hinkos, the most common ones that you hear? We see that we're kind of starting with that topic, that the strong urge to urinate, to have to go more frequently. Is that the most typical kind of problem uh, that occurs in connection with Parkinson's disease?
3: Yeah, so the most common there, they come in two general categories, the irritative symptoms and the obstructive symptoms. So the irritative symptoms, the most common is probably going to the bathroom at night very frequently. And from there, you start having uh, problems with urgency during the daytime with or without leaking of urine accidentally as well. That's uh, the syndrome on whether you got to go, you got to go and then frequency during the daytime. So all all these symptoms come um, um, sequentially, they can be mixed later on. In men in particular, but also women, they can have obstructive symptoms and those are hesitancy, difficulty getting the urine stream started, poor flow, dribbling, or feeling like you did not quite empty the bladder so you have to go again uh, frequently thereafter and um uh, treating those um requires paying attention first of all to all the vicissitudes of getting old parkinson's does not protect you from all these other problems that were mentioned there by Dr. de Leon uh but it actually makes them worse so that part of it is the mixing and uh, having Parkinson's with the process of aging and you have to deal with both of them as a package.
1: Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit further, Dr. Miyazaki, if, if you would comment on that too, because we've referenced that now a couple of times and actually a number of people have written in uh, questions uh, about that. Um, one person wrote in, how do you sort out what's Parkinson's and what might be in a, in a male problems with, with prostate? Um, how do you sort those things out? And I guess, along with that, is it important to sort that out in terms of the, the treatment protocol that you want to follow, whether the problem is due to aging or whether the problem is due to Parkinson's? Uh,
2: so one of the things we talked about in the podcast earlier was uh, getting a group of multidisciplinary Uh, people interested in urinary function, specifically the lower urinary tract, who have expertise in dealing with people with Parkinson's and other neurologic disorders. And they can be helpful in determining what exactly is going on. And one of the important tests they use beyond taking a very detailed history and trying some conservative measures that don't use medications at all is urodynamics, where they actually fill your bladder up with fluid, and then they can assess how your bladder responds to that. So the people who are complaining of urinary frequency, often this is because the muscle in the bladder is overactive. So any amount of filling makes it contract, which makes you want to run to the bathroom. The other problem, the obstructive problems that Dr. Hunkos mentioned, um, can also be determined by urodynamics because we'll be able to see that despite having a full bladder you can't really provide a good stream and in the case of men that may be due to the prostate getting bigger which happens with age and that can be treated in different ways both with medications initially and then if necessary with surgeries. So it is important to determine what is the cause of the bladder problems and to try and tailor the treatment to the person, always starting with the least invasive treatments first and then moving on to more intensive treatments.
1: We'll get to some of those treatments in just a moment, but Doctor De Leon, let's bring your perspective back in on this because these aren't easy topics to talk about. Uh, no one really likes to talk very much about things like urinary problems or constipation for that matter. These are these are difficult issues and we don't always associate them with Parkinson's. We think about that as, well, that's another problem. I'll talk about that with some, someone else. Can you bring both your physician's and your patient's perspective to this about the importance about talking about this with your neurologist. But as Dr. Miyazaki is also suggesting, you know, being assertive perhaps about about engaging other specialists um, as necessary too.
0: Yes. Uh, as both Dr. Hunkos and Dr. Miyazaki have spoken, you know, you can have various uh, symptoms and the best way to, to diagnose sometimes is with using de- urodynamics, which I have myself have done on multiple patients and also on myself. but. Um, The one thing that I think has been very helpful for patients and for neurologists, one is that you have to have an open conversation. You have to feel comfortable with the physician that you are speaking with uh, to talk about these very salient problems because, as Dr. Hunko says, most of these problems... usually have a treatment if we can find out what is causing them so that people don't have to have an abnormal lifestyle or be embarrassed to go out. And sometimes, you know, we're not even aware of the things that are going on, as I mentioned in the past. Sometimes, you know, we think it's part of our normal life, especially if we have lived with the Parkinson's disease for a long time. We think we're used to going to the bathroom a lot more, and so we just kind of make it part of our daily routine. But, you know, our um, care partners, our, you know, family members may start noticing changes. And so that's always important to bring into the conversation. And sometimes, you know, we as patients don't bring our family members or don't bring someone that knows as well, lives with us, and tell us that, oh, you know, there have been changes. My husband is usually the first one to notice when there is a variation in my uh, bathroom frequency. He says, okay, something's going on. You know, you may have a urine infection or something because now you're going 20 times a day, 20 times an hour versus your usual 10 times, you know. So um, so there's something to be said about having that perspective. But also what I have found is that it is important because so many of us have uh, not just one type of problem causing um, our, our uh, urgencies or frequencies or, or urinary problems. For instance, you know, some of us as we get... Um, more into the disease, may get stiffer, may get slower. So some of the problems we're having is that we're not able to get to the bathroom on time. We're not able to uh, unbutton our clothes on time. You know at nighttime we're not able to get up uh, because you know it's dark we may fall and so you know we may have some of those urinary problems so it's important to to talk to the physician about those issues uh, and keep a detailed record I think that that's the best thing the best advice that I can give keep a diary of when this is occurring is it occurring after certain medication intake is it occurring after certain foods intake or you know is it occurring particular times of the morning or the day Um, to to better understand what is going on? Is it occurring
1: when you're constipated? Dr. De Leon, much like, you know, we're often encouraged to note and keep track of when we might have movement problems. When might a tremor be worse or a gait problem be, be more uh, challenging? Just as we're encouraged to keep track of, of those sorts of things, you're, you're advocating track these problems uh, too, because it's exactly. that sort of detailed information that can lead to the best treatment.
0: Yes. I think that that's the best way to figure out, and it has helped me in the past to figure out that my uh, bladder problems were not always caused by, uh, per se, you know, directly from the Parkinson's, but also from medication, and sometimes because mm-hmm. my my constipation was so severe that it was the rectum was getting so distended and it was pressing on the on the bladder, causing obstruction. And so once we determined that, then my bladder was able to be uh, controlling my constipation patient, you know, got uh, in line and so I, you know, was able to function uh, normally and better than, than I had been.
1: Let me ask a question because we're getting lots of queries uh, about this, about the the note that you see at the bottom of the screen. And Dr. Hunkos, maybe you can take this one on, on urinary tract um, infections. Um, uh, one individual wrote in that um, this person's mother um, gets urinary tract infections all the time and it makes her Parkinson's that much worse. Um, anybody who's ever had to deal with a urinary tract infection, either for themselves or, or for a loved one, knows how uh, problematic they can be, and that they can lead to many, many other problems. What's going on with that, Dr. Humkosa? Are, are is, there, is it when you when you have these urinary difficulties, does that lead to more UTIs? Um, tell us something about what's going on with that. What patients should watch for, uh, and so forth.
3: So with these autonomic nervous systems and the process of aging, you can have uh, incomplete bladder emptying and to the extent that you leave urine behind after you think you've finished voiding, uh, it becomes a a culture medium, the urine is, and you're much more likely to develop infections over a period of time. Uh, uh, Men with prostatic uh, enlargement who are also unable to empty the bladder completely. They are also more prone to urinary tract infections. Constipation changes the angle of the urethra that connects the bladder to the outside world. That also tends to cause obstruction. And, of course, the uh, the difficulties with contraction of the bladder muscle. The end result of that is recurring uh, bladder infections that can be treated when they occur every now and then with antibiotics. Uh, in patients who continue to have them, you may need either a chronic prophylactic antibiotic that's taking something every day. That's something that the doctors don't generally like doing, but are forced to do over a period of time. Essentially, you become a patient who's at risk of developing uh, resistant organisms when you do that, but it's it's a least of two evils if you don't have a choice and in some instances you require a surgical intervention. Now the other part of the question is uh, so what happens once you get a urinary tract infection? Well in elderly people sometimes they don't realize they have an infection and as it simmers without being treated it can affect negatively the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and you feel like the medicines don't work as well, you're not doing well, you're having a bad day, it can become as nonspecific as all of that, so it's important to always think about it, even though you may not have a burning of the urine necessarily or discoloration of the urine, the usual symptoms that people look for, the older you are the less likely that these symptoms will necessarily be prominent and in, in not treating it, then your Parkinsonism is gonna feel like the medicines are not working as well. In in patients with more advanced disease, it leads very often to uh, visits to the emergency room because it, it really feels like the Parkinson's, although insta- nothing's working. Or if the person has memory problems and other cognitive issues, the inflammation itself tends to go from bladder to more systemic, And that systemic inflammatory state can cause confusion, sometimes even hallucinations. I used to run an inpatient unit in a geriatric hospital, and we used to comment uh, that the most common medication we use to treat confusion and hallucinations in the elderly, but in particular the Parkinson community, was Bactrim. So that we're admitting them to a psychiatric unit our medical unit, because of confusion, and all we had to do is treat the urinary tract infection, and they were they were fine again. So important to always think of that first.
1: Really makes dramatic how how crucial um, treating UTIs uh, can be. If the most effective thing in dealing with a problem of confusion or hallucination is is an antibiotic. Um, let's let's dig in further now into talking about um, the the treatments for these. Um, various uh, uh, problems. Um, And uh, I want to come at this a a little bit differently than the order that we have on the slide, Dr. Miyazaki, and and ask you to comment first because we've gotten quite a few questions about how Parkinson's medications may complicate uh, uh, urinary uh, problems, um, particularly the problem of of urinary frequency. So before we start talking about how how to treat the urinary problem, Let's deal first with the issue of whether or not the standard Parkinson's medications themselves are, are can can complicate these these urinary difficulties. Is that something that can take place, Dr. Miyazaki?
2: Uh, generally, the medications for Parkinson's disease do not cause. Um bladder problems, although in the past we used to use a class of drugs called anticholinergics such as trihexphenidol or benztropine, particularly for people who have tremor, or some patients might be on amantadine, which does have anticholinergic properties, and these medications can result in urinary retention or the inability to void. Um, Other medications might be used as uh, treatment for the other non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's, such as depression. So some of the antidepressants, for example, mirtazapine, has anticholinergic effects as well. And that might um, also result in the person being unable to void or perhaps an increased risk of urinary tract infections. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that low blood pressure during the day can result in having to get up frequently in the night to pee because the kidneys just don't see a high enough blood pressure to create the urine. And so when you lie down at night, then the urine production increases, and a person has to void frequently at night. So also checking to make sure that the standing blood pressure is sufficiently high is important.
1: Fascinating. And, and that speaks to issues on, on several things that are on the slide now, so let's pursue them. Uh, first, what you're saying that, that some of the Parkinson's medications can affect the problem of, of um, Retaining uh, u- urine and not being able to eliminate, so that's something people can check. So with that problem with uh, not being able to um, uh, urinate properly, that that could be a medication side effect. And now let's talk some about um, the the other problem, which is um, not being able to hold onto your urine well enough and having to go too frequently. And and you just mentioned something about um, you know the low blood pressure connection and fluid intake. This this can feel contradictory to me, um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Miyasaki and, and Dr. DeLeon. Maybe you can chime in on this as a patient perspective too. Where sometimes we're told it's really important to hydrate because of low blood pressure, or just generally speaking, it's important to hydrate. But then we see on the slide here. Well, maybe you want to limit uh, fluids. Um, uh, so how do how do we reconcile what seems like Dr. Miyasaki' conflicting advice?
2: So. In general, I tell patients that they need to drink sufficient amounts of fluids, one to help with constipation, and as Dr. DeLeon mentioned, if you're constipated, that will affect your ability to void. So having excellent bowel routine is really crucial, and so you have to drink enough to have that bowel routine, but then after 6 p.m., you should probably not be drinking a lot of fluids Mm. and that can help so when we talk about limiting fluids we're really talking about not drinking fluids after 6 pm and also not going to the extreme of of drinking five liters of water but drinking sufficiently to help maintain your hydration and maintain uh, a good bowel routine.
1: Dr. on from your perspective, how have you juggled some of these things, in, in, including how you contend with uh, fluid intake?
0: Well, I think, like Dr. Miyazaki said, you know, make sure that we do drink plenty of fluids during the, the daytime, and of course, you know, a little bit more uh, during the hot months of the, the year. But yeah, if you're especially. Uh, particularly at night time uh, Would want to avoid drinking You know after like you, you said After 6 o'clock or sometimes You know a little bit later if you're up and about But you know uh, try to decrease That intake so that you're not constantly Up all night uh, especially if You've had low blood pressure And now in night time just as we age Also the nocturia the increase Of voiding at night increases So then you don't want to do that The other thing that I would recommend is avoiding uh, Things like caffeine Um, which make you um, they're diuretics so make you go more often and spicy foods and alcohol Uh, so during the daytime also so that you would avoid some of those things if uh, you're already having a lot of problems going to the bathroom a lot of urgency and frequency and even my favorite thing chocolate which is hard to give up Uh, (laughs) it really helps with my you know my other Parkinson's symptoms but but that sometimes can really irritate the bladder and cause more problems Uh,
1: so would try to avoid those things. Hmm. And Dr. Miyasaki, if oh, you would, let's oh, also touch on one other non-pharmacological uh, uh, approach, which is the, the, uh, what's mentioned here as pelvic floor exercises. Um, what are they and, and why are they useful?
2: So many women are familiar with pelvic floor exercises uh, because after childbirth, we're taught to contract those muscles in your pelvic floor. And if you need to find out where they are, um, one way to uh, engage them is while you are voiding, try and stop the stream. If the muscles that you're engaging to stop that stream are the pelvic floor muscles, you should not do this routinely while you're peeing because urologists and nephrologists believe that this increases your risk of uh, bladder infections. But at least that gives you an idea of what muscles are necessary to contract. And then in general, we tell patients that they should be contracting several times and holding for a count of 10 several times throughout the day as often as you can um, to help increase the strength of the pelvic floor muscles. The other thing we should think of is that our core muscles are generally weak in North American society because we spend so much time sitting. Um, So even... Uh, people who are sedentary have poor core muscle strength, and that can help you when you are trying to void completely. So Dr. Hunkos mentioned sometimes you think you have voided completely, but there's still urine in the bladder, which then serves as the medium for bacteria to thrive. If you have a good core muscle strength, so your stomach muscles... Then you can help contract at the time avoiding to completely empty your bladder.
1: And Dr. Miyasaki, are these exercises, obviously core applies regardless of gender, uh, pelvic floor exercise, like you were saying, I do associate that with, with women and childbirth, but presumably men can do pelvic floor, ex- pelvic floor exercise as well?
2: Yes, they can. And if you just Google uh, pelvic, exercise, pelvic floor exercises for men, you will get plenty of web pages um, telling you how to do it. It's a similar process. So while you're voiding, try stopping the urine stream. And those muscles that you engage to do that are the same muscles that women engage
1: Great. Um, and let's, let's pursue then some of the, uh, the pharmacologic uh, uh, treatments, um, both for the problem of being able to hold on to urine and the, and the problem of not being able to uh, eliminate properly. Um, Dr. Hunkos, back to you, in terms of medications that can be helpful, let's say you're, you're um, having problems um, being able to uh, hold on to uh, your urine, you're going too frequently, maybe you have problems with incontinence. Um, are there are there uh, pharmacological treatments that can be helpful there, and if so, what might those be?
3: So the first thing I, I think about is uh, what can we eliminate uh, that is uh, aggravating the situation already before thinking of adding something new, and and those things that can be modified, eliminated, oftentimes in consultation with the primary care doctor of the patient is uh, use of diuretics, the timing of the use of diuretics. Are they on opioid medications that tend to constipate almost inev- inevitably? Uh, Dr. Miyazaki mentioned amantidine, trihexyphenidyl, and uh, medicines with anticholinergic effects that we use in Parkinson's disease. We mentioned the antidepressants, um, calcium channel blockers, or another uh, group of medications uh, that have been... Associated with aggravating these urinary symptoms, so that's just general medical care. And then once uh, you have uh, sort of work with those, uh, uh, which generally require consultation with the internist, so it doesn't look that here you have the neurologist, you know, uh, going amok here with all the other medications that the patient needs to take or not. Um, um, you also want to look at sort of other medical conditions that that uh, uh, that uh, can aggravate symptoms that require treatment before we get to the anticholinergics we use for our urinary frequency, and I'll mention those briefly. But things like uh, we mentioned the BPH, the in women atrophic vaginitis, uh, aging effects of the bladder that sometimes depends on whether you had prior abdominal or pelvic surgery, how many children you've had, relaxation of the pelvic floor. Sleep disorders are also notorious to uh, aggravate the the problems with uh, urination at night. And then patients who have uh, diabetes, venous insufficiency are also uh, prone to these things. In terms of uh, medications that can be used, we can use medications to reduce help the bladder relax or to reduce that irritability of the bladder that tends to contract before its time. From a general Parkinson's perspective, one of the best things that can be done in patients who have a lot of motor fluctuations is try to mitigate those motor fluctuations as best we can with the control of the medications like levodopa, carbidopa and agonist. When the patients develop a lot of fluctuations, when all of a sudden they turn off, or the medications seem to uh, stop working as well or s- stop working abruptly, that for some reason that we may not understand very well, tends to trigger that sudden urge to uh, empty your bladder. It's almost uh, uh, cruel in that the moment in time when you most desperately need to go is exactly when you know your feet feel like they're not moving as fast or they lock- get locked. And those sudden drops tend to precipitate those events so that uh, controlling the motor fluctuations is uh, important. Now, to decrease that bladder irritability, we have a number of medications, most of which are anticholinergics. They tend to be um, more specific to cholinergic receptors in the bladder. Therefore, they're not quite as bad as the trihexyphenidyl. Artane that we were mentioning before and these medicines go by a number of names. The more modern ones are things like uh, Sanctura, Detril. Um I'm mentioning the commercial names but I'm mentioning all of them because the, the generic names uh, are more difficult to pronounce so that you've heard these in the, the news and and from your doctor, Enablix, Tovias, Ditrapin, Vesicare, Detrol, Sanctura. I don't expect you to memorize them, but there's uh, many choices, and some have a little bit more, a little bit less, any cholinergic effect. One in particular, the solifenosine, also known as Vesicare, has been studied specifically in Parkinson's disease in a double-blind placebo-controlled study done by Dr. Sessowicz in Tampa, Florida and she found that it is effective. There's plenty of open-label studies that have shown that the others can be of help as well. The side effects of these medications are dry mouth and they may aggravate constipation. In some cases, if the person already has some memory problems, it can lead to some cognitive side effects, particularly at the higher doses. Uh, There's a new medication that was approved in 2012 that affects beta 3 receptors. That's a type of receptor. It's not on an any cholinergic, but it tends to relax the bladder muscle as well. And it goes by the name of mirabigron, mur- or the commercial name is mirbetric. And that too has been shown to have a beneficial effect in Parkinson's patients. And for those who tend to drop the blood pressure, unlike many medicines in Parkinson's, this one can increase the blood pressure so that. And those patients who already have a problem with low blood pressures, this may be a good choice. Uh, you have to make sure that the blood pressure doesn't go up too high. And on rare occasions, it can cause palpitations or arrhythmias. Then, So those are medicines that we use for it to um, relax the bladder, decrease the bladder irritability. But then there are other medicines that we use to then uh, improve emptying by reducing the the blockage to emptying so relaxing the sphincter that tends to help you control bladder emptying and uh, reducing the size of the prostate to uh, reduce the level of obstruction so to reduce the size of the prostate which is sort of a, a extremely common in men there are drugs like finasteride and Pasteurine. They have similar names and basically they help reduce obstruction by reducing the side, uh, side of the prostate. There are others that relax the sphincter such as Tamsulosin, um, uh, uh, also known as Flomax, there's another one called rapaflow. there's one called Urexitrol or Alfusosin, that's why I don't want to mention the generic names because they're so hard yeah. to pronounce. But they—they they yeah, basically the—the that... the last one um, uh, tends to drop the blood pressure less than the two that I mentioned previously.
1: Yeah, no, it so is I... complicated when there are so many so possibilities. It,
3: the idea is not to emphasize individual ones, but the, their possibilities. Uh, one decreases bladder irritability, and the other category tends to decrease uh, potential obstruction. And they have to be used with prescription generally with the help of a urologist or another member of the team that is very comfortable with the potential side effects of these medicines.
1: Yes, yeah, we can tell from your, your list, a lengthy list of, of both not only medications, but also your earlier point, which is the first thing you do, is to try to look at what might be eliminated uh, within the existing realm of medications that a patient is taking, whether that's diuretics or something else. Um, so that this, as we can tell, can be so complicated that perhaps you, your starting point is is reducing before uh, you start to add. I think that's, that's well uh, worth keeping in mind. I want to get us on to some of the new research and get to many more questions that are coming in. Uh, but, but Dr. De Leon, let me just ask you what you found most useful. You have talked about keeping track, you've talked about how you moderate your fluid intake. Um, But have any of these medications that uh, Dr. Hukos was describing been useful for you? uh, Any insight, additional insight, uh, perhaps that you could provide about what's been most helpful in dealing with your own uh, urinary challenges?
0: Yes. Um, Well, first of all, um, I want to say that. in my, you know, research and working with women, I have found that a lot of women, uh, including myself, uh, have a tendency to have greater uh, risk of uh, urinary infections and urgency and frequency from taking medicines like Aselect. So that's one of the medications that seems Mm -hmm. to really Uh, affect a lot of women. Uh, Unfortunately, I couldn't be off of it because it really helps me with my pain. So I had to, you know, find a way to work around that. But uh, when, you know, we discontinued that, of course, the the urgency and frequency and urinary infections uh, stopped. (laughs) So, um, and I have found that to be true in a lot of women. So that's something to talk about with your neurologist and, you know, your other uh, physicians that are working with your urine uh, problems. But also, the other thing that, you know, is still not really mentioned a lot, and uh, and I'm just going to throw it out there as, you know, devil's advocate and something that has helped me a lot. Um, I was on Mer- Merbetrick, and I went through all the urinary dynamics, and for a time I was also on uh, I was on prophylactic antibiotics and uh, and also antisposmotics, which helped. And, and so they all had their time and helped. Uh, the Merbetrick was the one that helped the most, and, and for a time I was very well-controlled. And then I started having a lot of problems again, um, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and so... You know, I've, I've read a lot of literature that uh, perhaps, you know, as we know, the dopamine um, can inhibit the release of insulin. And so, of course, we're taking a lot of dopamine replacements. so are we getting uh, insulin resistant? And so although I'm not diabetic, you know, finally talked to my endocrinologist, and I've been placed on on blood uh, sugar medicine. I'm, I'm not diabetic, and that has stopped all my urinary infections and frequencies. And I got off the murbetrick. that is just me, so i don 't know if that you know if that has anything we really not uh, looked into that we don 't have any literature that it you know predisposes a whole lot uh, but there are some some papers out there that that talk about this so uh, again, discuss with your physician, you know, is there family risk factors of being diabetic or is there something else going on when you've tried all these other medications and you've been to, I even was, um, I was sent to do some training, behavioral training to try to, you know, control the urgency and the frequency. And that has a lot of benefit for a lot of people, you know, just when you have the urgency and frequency or you just really, you know, that you, you know, bladder is basically empty. So trying to hold it a little bit longer and that helps re- Retrain your bladder. So those are the things that
1: I have been through, and I'm doing very well right now. So, all right, thank you, Dr. De Leon. Um, uh, Dr. Miyasaki, as we begin to talk about um, some of the ongoing research that's going on, um, I, I would like though you to comment, Dr. Miyasaki, on on the observation Dr. De Leon just made are we learning anything about the connection between blood sugar levels and urinary uh, difficulties and what would you advise people to consider in in that regard well certainly um
2: we're learning that there is such a close connection between the brain and the gut Um, the pancreas which controls insulin is part of the gut and there is probably more interaction than we have previously recognized. So in um, speaking to your primary care physician, seeking an endocrinologist's advice um, is worthwhile. Also, it's also uh, been recently noticed that people with Parkinson's do have a higher r- uh, rate of diabetes. And it's not clear whether this is from the medications or whether this is even at uh, before medications have started. Um, So that is something that we should be exploring further. Um, I would mention that there are some of the diabetes medications are designed to increase the kidney excretion of glucose, and that results in urinary frequency for many people. So some of my patients have said, ever since I started this new diabetes medication, I have to run to the bathroom. Uh, So sometimes treating your diabetes can also cause problems.
1: Let's um, touch on a couple of research areas and then we'll get to more um, questions. Um, Dr. Miyazaki, on uh, what we see at the top here, research into to melatonin, and also at the bottom, the transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Any, for you, interesting research prospects out there that people should be tuning into that may eventually be helpful in terms of dealing with these urinary difficulties?
2: Well, certainly using melatonin is considered very benign and it has the added benefit that it might improve your sleep, uh, which is frequently a problem for people with Parkinson's, both uh, initiating sleep or maintaining sleep, as well as REM sleep behavior disorders. So using melatonin can have multiple benefits for patients and is worthwhile uh, keeping your eye on. Uh, The other Uh, Behavioral modifications have been examined really in open-label ways because it's hard to get people to do those exercises and blind them. But um, those are things that aren't going to add to your pill burden and yet might improve your functioning. And then the more invasive things, in fact, uh, deep brain stimulation is... Uh, has been shown at least in patients who are eligible for the surgery to also result in improvement in non-motor symptoms such as urinary frequency. So frequently patients who have deep brain stimulation report they sleep better and also they have less nocturia. Um, the, the last point on this slide looks at um, Uh, non-invasive stimulation of the lower leg muscles and there are some reports of that. Um, There are also reports not specifically in Parkinson's disease but in general for people with bladder problems to have uh, sacral nerve neuromodulation which is a little more invasive because the electrode has to be implanted uh, around the sacral nerve in order to improve bladder function.
1: And are those um, uh, treatment protocols, Dr. Miyazaki, designed to help someone who has urgency problems, or are they designed to help someone who has bladder emptying problems, or both? Uh,
2: so they're, they are uh, designed for people with uh, lower urinary tract uh, dysfunction, so it can help both the frequency as well as the uh, difficulties emptying. And people with Parkinson's can also have a, a Less common disorder called detrusor sphincter dysinergia where the the muscle is contracting and wanting to empty but the sphincter of your bladder will not relax and that's that can be very painful and uncomfortable for patients because they have that feeling of needing to void and yet they cannot start the stream. And that's a, a very common cause of people having nocturia, having to get up in the middle of the night, and then very frustratingly, not voiding very much mm-hmm. and uh, their care partner being frustrated by the sleep disruption.
1: Yeah, good good points to keep an eye on as we go forward. Um, let's uh, take our last 10 minutes or so to go through some remaining questions that people have raised during the course of the hour. Um, Dr. Hunkos, let me, let me- Post this one for you. A lot of people are continuing to struggle um, with having a more definitive sense of how much uh, fluid they ought to drink during the day. So, what's your general recommendation for how much fluid and when that fluid ought to be consumed?
3: Mm. What the internists uh, tell, these are geriatricians, they tell you eight ounces of water about six to eight times a day. That's sort of a general okay. guideline. It may vary uh, by individual based on are they taking diuretics or not taking diuretics, but the important thing is that, as Dr. Miyazaki, uh mentioned before, is that whatever intake uh, of a fluid is, uh, is um, healthy for you, you should do it mostly during the daytime and begin reducing the amount of fluid intake after six o'clock in the evening so that you don't... uh, As you lie down, you get all that venous return to the heart and eventually to the bladder and you don't want to stimulate that while you're trying to go to sleep as well.
1: Question about whether there's any connection between bladder problems and the development of kidney stones. Dr. Miyazaki? Certainly, if you're
2: not able to avoid regularly, um, you might develop kidney stones. But generally, this is due to a problem with your body handling various minerals such as uh, calcium or uric acid and um, or repeated infections can result in stones as well. So it does speak um- to having adequate hydration. Again, really frustratingly for the patients, we're telling them don't drink after six, but drink enough during the day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. De Leon, maybe you can offer some guidance on this one. Um, Mike asks, uh, for these problems, urinary problems, um, should I be talking to my neurologist or should I I be talking to a urologist? Um, Maybe the answer is both. Uh, Dr. De Leon, what do you think?
0: yeah I think that um you know it depends on your um, neurologist uh, how comfortable he or she is with dealing these problems and and what the cause is so certainly, I would recommend starting with your neurologist uh and discussing the issue so they can as Dr. Miyasaki and Dr. Hunkos have said, you know eliminate things that may be causing the problem or adjust your parkinson 's medication if you 're wearing off or having uh off periods that is uh, prolonging or causing the symptoms, but they may want to um, consult uh, another physician, another specialist. And I find that dealing with uh, chronic uh, urinary infections is usually a team problem, a team effort. Uh, and so, you know, they may refer you to a urologist, or you know, if you're female, may go to a gynecologist, somebody that has expertise in dealing with urologic uh, dysfunction. So, uh, I, I think again, discussing at first with your neurologist, so that if there's any need for adjustment of medications, and they may even start some medications, as uh, Dr. has uh, listed, a whole list of uh, treatments available that we can begin. But if that's not solving the issue or it's more complicated, then yes, I think getting a specialist is definitely uh, in order, and they can decide with you who is the best person in the area.
1: We have time just for a few closing thoughts, but let me ask you to begin that, Dr. Miyazaki, with perhaps an observation about... Something I know you feel strongly about, which is to make sure you that your neurologist is connected to other specialists who can be helpful that that there's sometimes i know what you refer to sometimes as as a village approach uh, being necessary to contend with all of the complications that come with parkinson 's disease and that actually seem to increase the longer that you have the condition uh,
2: certainly. Uh... I advocate developing a, a village or a web of professionals who are interested in people with Parkinson's and all their complexity. Um, it is impossible, I would say, for a neurologist on their own to look after all the possible problems that a person with Parkinson's can face. And just imagine how much harder it is then for a primary care physician to manage that so at our clinic as an example we have a very close connection with a geriatric led uh, urinary incontinence clinic and they see almost all our patients then we have an outpatient program for rehabilitation and uh, probably half of their population consists of people with Parkinson's So it speaks to um, your neurologist or even the primary care physician reaching out to find people who are interested in people with Parkinson's who can see a volume of people with Parkinson's and really develop an expertise of knowing what works, what doesn't work, what other things should I look for because everything that we recommend or prescribe can have both a positive or negative effect on some of the other symptoms, and it's so difficult to keep all of this in mind. And uh, one of the things I, I tell my neurology trainees is you have to be ever vigilant on your patient's medication list to ensure that we're having the best balance of relieving their symptoms and the least amount of side effects to improve their quality of life. You can't just focus on one symptom
1: alone. Really great point. Um, Dr. Hunkos, last uh, thoughts or, or tips um, from you that you'd like to offer people who are who are struggling with these issues, and then Dr. DeLeon, I'll ask you for a, a last word, but Dr. Hunkos first.
3: So very briefly, one treatment that is uh, FDA approved and which we didn't mention, was the Botox to the the trucer muscle mm, right. in the bladder, so that that that's viable for for people. I think that we're learning over time how many of the patients who uh, had the injections benefited will go on to have it a second, a third, and a fourth time, and that that data is being accumulated now. But there is uh, evidence, solid evidence, that it it does help is it for everyone i think that we're learning the answer to that question uh certainly not for everyone but you know the longevity of these treatments and the other one that's very practical that we may not have to address but just to give the uh the persons who are in the audience sort of food for thought in in men when they are offered um prostate surgery and they have Parkinson's disease, and now they've heard that there is some autonomic dysfunction with the Parkinson's disease, it should be clear that the prostate surgery, the benign, uh, the prostatectomy, is not gonna cure the the autonomic symptoms, they will go on. So then the question becomes, uh, what level of benefit should they be expected? And that's a bit of a trick question, because we don't have exact answers to those questions. But you should uh, feel very comfortable asking your urologist, look, I also have Parkinson's disease. Realistically, what level of benefit should I be expecting? How many of these symptoms will remain? Uh, are we completely sure that the obstructive part of my problem is really the main problem? And, ergo, I should go ahead with the surgery. Or, or is this sort of not clear right now?
1: Really great uh, cautionary note, I think, about that. And and thanks for bringing back up the Botox, uh, which is a fascinating area because it's also being used, as I understand it, sometimes to help with dystonia, with cramping, uh, even with with problems such as drooling.
3: Hypersalivation uh, and drooling.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so really interesting uh, to bring that up. And, and I think the cautionary note on prostate is, is helpful for people to hear as well. Dr. De Leon, we're we're about out of time, but, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for a, a last thought, particularly since you come at this with this um, dual perspective as physician and, and patient. So a last word from you on what you'd like people to think about as they're contending with these, these challenging problems.
0: Well, first of all, I do want to remind them that um, there are many treatments for this. Uh, and To make sure that you do discuss with your primary or your neurologist uh, what the issues are, if you're having problems, do not be embarrassed because there are treatments and there's no reason to be uh, ashamed or hiding or not or decreasing your social function because you have these issues. Uh, it may take uh, some time and so be patient to figure out exactly what's causing your problems. But I think that... you know, with the right team, uh, I think that that can be under control and managed with various uh, treatments, uh, which may include some surgical or Botox uh, or even some behavioral therapy. So again, just talking to your physician, being open about the symptoms, and uh, make sure that keep that diary is very, very important, just as long as, you know, you keep the diary for all your other symptoms I know that you have in your life. So,
1: Thank you. Uh, I want to thank all of our guests, uh, Dr. Maria de Leon, uh, Dr. Janice Miyazaki, and Dr. Jorge Juncos for their participation in our webinar today. We really appreciate it. Thanks Thanks so much. And as we wrap up, I just want to um, mention that if you're interested in participating in research, it's always such an important thing to consider. You can find uh, research projects that may match your interests and your location by going to foxtrialfinder.org. I'm Dave Iverson. Thanks for joining us.
0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.